Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So very sadly for Professor Ross Tucker, who's sitting next to me, the uh, Winter Olympics are over. Um, they uh, were something that I didn't probably watch as much of as I should have because I was busy putting magazines together. But I know Ross was very involved with them and there was a fair amount of controversy. There was a bit of uh, bit of political controversy to deal with. There was a doping case that everybody was talking about. So we thought we would reflect uh, on the Winter Olympics in Beijing that had finished uh, just a couple of days ago. And we started uh, by talking to uh, Sean Ingle, who's the chief sports reporter at The Guardian. And Sean offered some pretty remarkable insight and stuff that you probably haven't probably read about but just because he was on the ground there it gave him a, a site that we never saw on our television screens yeah sean was the go-to guy for me anyway every day to read what he'd been at the day before because he was at the snowboarding he was at the ice skating he ended up deeply immersed in the biggest controversy of the olympics maybe since ben johnson in 1988 and gets these amazing unique perspectives and he also has so much experience of covering the games and so much to lay those insights on top of. So always, I mean, he's a regular on the pod for this reason, but always a fascinating listen. So Ross, as I said, I didn't get a much chance to watch the, much the, Olympi- uh, the Winter Olympics as you did. But from what I saw in the news, obviously the doping controversy was something that made headlines all the way around the world. But there was there was plenty of fun stuff out there as well, wasn't there? Some good news stuff. Yeah, especially for the sports science nerds among us. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it is the case in the Summer Olympics, and I've just become so accustomed to it that I almost tune it out. But there seems to me anyway to be a lot of engineering and technical stuff in winter sports that is quite decisive for the results. And so it becomes a focal point for the discussions. And and one such example was there was a, or is a, a speed skater from Sweden, initially Dutch, Niels van der Poel, who made the news twice during Beijing. The one time was when he suggested that the Dutch were being corrupt for trying to manage the condition of the ice (laughs) by manipulating someone whose job title, I gather, is rink manager or engineer. So the way I I gather it works is that the Beijing Velodrome or whatever it was that had the the speed skating events employs someone to look after the condition of the ice to make the decision Mm. around when you'd put water on it, cool it off, heat it up a little bit. And the Dutch said that they'd brought their own person with to Beijing. And that person was in consultation with the Beijing ice manager. And Van then accused them in a press conference of unprecedented levels of corruption. He says it's the biggest scandal in the sport at the moment. And the Dutch obviously responded and said, these are comments not befitting an Olympic champion because he'd beaten them a couple days before in the 5,000. He is Dutch, by the way, but now skating for Sweden. So I'm sure there's a little bit in that also. And uh, then he won the 10,000. So in the end, I don't know whether it was just a bit of gamesmanship, a little bit of an idiosyncratic uh, play by Nils well, I mean, van der Poel. What's, but what's amazing is that there, that, that there is a discussion around the fact that ice is not just ice. There's different kinds of ice. Right. And I mean, I've, I've, never, I've never even tried a speed skate, so I've got no idea how this plays out. But um, 
interesting that that you can seek an advantage by trying to manipulate the the surface. Yeah. And I don't understand that because you would have thought that yes, I could see how there'd be fast ice and slow ice, but for everyone. Yeah. Unless what he same. means is that because the way the speed skating worked, I don't know how many of you watched this. This is long track. Is they pair off. They don't race eight at a time. They pair off. And so in theory, if you start early on in the program, you could have. 45 minutes between your performance and the person who goes last. And so in, th- in theory, you could manipulate the ice from the start to the end yeah. of the 5,000 or the 10,000 and then get your best guys out first when it's good and then try and get worse conditions for everyone at the, at the back. So maybe that's what he meant. But anyway, that was, it, that, was a, that was a potentially big story that ended up going nowhere, but just interesting nevertheless. And there was a couple of athletes that you told about, told me about before we did the podcast that uh, suffered some rather serious injuries from <laughs> quite extreme conditions because some of the events were cut short because of their conditions. Yeah, the biggest thing, interesting enough, was it was too cold many days, yeah. which you wouldn't thought was a big problem. But of, of course, it, actually, it's obvious that it would be. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we spoke on this podcast about four or five weeks ago about exercise and the heat and how different events and competition organizers need to have guidelines for when they potentially cancel events. That same thing exists in the other direction, where when it gets too cold, you have to start thinking about canceling events. And there was a little bit of a controversy in the beginning in the cross-country skiing because some of the skiers felt that the organizers weren't accounting for wind chill enough. And so the way I read it, there was a policy that said that once the temperature dropped below X, you had to postpone the event and they're saying well it's not below x but the wind is also blowing at 40k an hour and that combination of cold air and high winds is absolutely brutal and that's why if you watched biathlon and cross-country skiing everyone had tape on their faces because Mm. that the wind burn i mean because they're going 45k an hour downhills can you imagine being on your bike at 45k an hour at minus 15 with a wind yep. at 40? I mean, it's just Tactic. and savagely cold. And I think, was it the, the long distance skiing where they cut it from the men's was supposed to be 50k and they ended up doing 30 or something like that? It mm, was definitely I, one of the events that was cut I didn't radically see. short. I saw a ceremony where they'd it's, described that. As much yeah. as I like to think that I've parked in front of the television for two and a half weeks, I actually missed too much of the games to be able to <laughs> answer that. Too, too much work got in the way for me as well, so I regret that. So I'll look forward to 2026 maybe we'll be, anyway. Maybe we'll go there but, next time. But there was a Finnish skier who finished the race and he was frozen in a very unfortunate body part. And I had a quote actually of his. He said, uh, <laughs> let me read this to you. Um, it was short. Yeah, you're right. So here we go. The men's 50K was shortened to 30K. Didn't help Lindholm though. Remy Lindholm finished in an hour and 16 minutes. Um, in howling freezing winds, leading to his penis becoming frozen for the second time in a cross-country skiing race following a similar incident in Finland last year. He says, it's one of the worst competitions I've been in. Uh, When the body parts started to warm up after the finish, the pain was unbearable, he added. So he will be pleased for summer to come around, Remy Lindholm. So, yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, we always think about, wow, it's too hot to train, too hot to compete. But I suppose the question is, why did he suffer from that and nobody else? Well, (laughs) if it's your second time, I know this much because I once got slight frostbites on my feet and was told, never verified this. Because, no, well... Wide surface area, <laughs> flat feet. I was told that uh, once you've had it once, then you're more susceptible in future. So I'm not sure how I got it the first time. I could yeah. tell you why it's the extremities, right? Because <laughs> fingers, ears, nose, and other extremities, because yeah. that's where the blood flow is the <laughs> is diverted away from in order to keep the core warm. So anyway, uh, hopefully not serious long-term damage for him. Yeah. 
Well, let's get that uh, perspective uh, from Sean Engel, who was there at the Games and an eyewitness to many of the stories that we've just talked about. So, Sean, welcome back uh, for you back at your home in England. And, of course, you spent uh, the last month or so in uh, Beijing itself at the Winter Olympics. I mean, you must I suppose you've got a bit of jet lag at the moment. Have you haven't got back just last night? I have a little bit, but uh, I'm sort of pushing through. Uh, Olympics uh, games are always a sort of strange and weird thing. You end up sort of sleeping three hours a night and are charging everywhere. Uh, but these ones were particularly strange. Um, it did feel a bit odd this morning. Not the first thing I didn't do was to sort of go and have a PCR test, which you had to do, you know, um, every morning in Beijing. I was able to step out and get a coffee, um, which I couldn't do in Beijing. The only time I got out was um, hop on a bus to take me to a media venue um, uh, or uh, a sports sports venue. Um, so that was, you know, and I didn't sort of see a line of security guards and police guards and a, an eight foot high fence around my hotel, which I did for the first last three weeks. So, um, yeah, all very different being back in the UK. So when you say, I mean, give us a bit more detail on that. So you're, you're literally hotel, venue and media center? Yeah, we were in what's called a closed loop and it's the same with all the athletes as well. So we're in, you know, incredibly restricted. Uh, we had no interaction with um, ordinary Chinese people except those that were also in, in the closed loop. So we had amazing volunteers that are now going to spend another three weeks in quarantine before they're allowed out wow. uh, to make sure they haven't got, got COVID. Um, I mean, the most sort of ridiculous example away in a way was we had a car accident um, when one of our special games taxis was driving an Olympic lane and someone pulled in, into, into it and um, uh, he didn't get out of the car. Instead, he, he spent 15 minutes clearly phoning the authorities and he must have had an, um, made an assessment to them and said, look, I think we can go on. And so he kind of crawled into the venue, in which case he was met with a bunch of people. He had to step out of the car. There was like a sort of a 10 minute assessment of his taxi. And then we were finally allowed out because Beijing, ordinary Beijing citizens were told if there was a car accident and it's an Olympic vehicle, do not approach, do not get involved. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, very wow. strange. But I saw something, Sean, Russia has it. Uh, they tested 1.8 million people or times, right? And they, had, and they had 400 and something positive tests. Correct. So, I, I mean, I'm not going to do the maths and work out how many decimal points there are uh, after the zero there before you arrive at the first number. But like, that seems disproportionately f uh, fearful to me. Well, that was the whole the whole Chinese policy. It's, it's very much a sort of, uh, I mean, regardless of your view on this, um, it was certainly the most extreme way of, of, of doing things. They want to almost sort of shut out COVID completely. Um, and they were determined that um, you know we would live in a sort of a, a sort of a separate parallel universe to the rest of uh, of Beijing during these games. So were you completely protected from be ever becoming a close contact? You you couldn't have been right because at, at at venues you would be around athletes and so on. So how many how many of the media contingent ended up getting sent off for quarantine because of the close contact thing they used? Um, well, there was a, there, if you were a close contact, the rules were slightly different. You had to sort of have a a couple of tests morning and night over a few days and then you were you would without having to go into isolation but i know uh, i spoke to one journalist at the airport that spent 11 days uh in a special isolation unit and he actually said he got the best one and he had 14 different types of fruit and he actually made it sound like it wasn't too bad <laughs> but i know of another journalist from an american publication that tested positive on the second day and spent three almost three weeks in isolation in one of the worst units and only got out 
on the second last day of the games and went straight home. So this wow. person missed the whole Olympics. Um, and you would have seen, I'm sure, on social media in the early days, uh, various athletes protesting about being in isolation and, and almost having the same sort of four things to have at each meal. Um, and, you know, they for them, their Olympics was over. So uh, that was always a, a sort of thought, particularly in the, those early days of what could happen if you, you caught it. Because no one wanted to be bussed away in, in the middle of the night to a special um, special unit. There was the case of the Belgian skeleton athlete. That was the one that really got the attention in the beginning. And then I read somewhere, it might have been your piece, Victor Victor Zhu, this figure skater, was that the name? Yeah, <laughs> what yeah. was the, I mean, I couldn't believe his luck because just tell us that I don't get it wrong. In your words, it's probably more accurate. He, he won, he won um, the silver medal in the team event. Um, and oh, then, yes, yes. then tested positive, so missed the individual event and spent some time in isolation. But having got out, and be, had 11 days of negative tests, was thought, well, at least I'll go to the closing ceremony because I'm fine. I've, I was basically told, no, you could be a close contact with others. You're, you're banned from the, um, the, the, the closing ceremony. So uh, he had a very, very strange game to need. He wasn't allowed to pick up his medal because obviously of the, the Valieva yeah. situation. And uh, yeah, and then not allowed to compete in the individual event. So, uh, yeah. Huh. I mean, there was an instance, I think I saw on TV, that the, the Dutch speed skating team as well one of them had tested positive and then there was a a retest and then eventually she was allowed back in so i mean i mean how many instances were there of covid athletes um leave i mean how many medals were affected do you think by athletes that were tested positive and were able to compete i mean it's it's impossible to know to be sure without sort of looking at you know almost getting a, the grace note uh, sort of medal predictions beforehand and then kind of cross-checking them with those who had covid and and some of those didn't want to um even uh, speak about it but the other thing of course in all this is the sort of low uh, the long covid implications there were some athletes that would have arrived and competed that wouldn't have been at their best i know i mean uh, britain's curling team had a false positive in the netherlands before they went and i think two they wouldn't name them but two of their women of their uh, of their five um, that they sent over had had COVID in the sort of build up. Now uh, they you know obviously they won a gold medal so it didn't affect them hugely. But I imagine in a more sort of um, you know anaerobic uh, event they you know that could have easily affected um, participants. You know even if, even they didn't have it in the games but they caught it in December or January. So. Um, possible to know for sure but i'm sure it would have affected um some medals just uh, just stepping back very briefly yeah uh, you, there was there's been talk about journalists going over there and being told not to take their own cell phones not to take their own laptops all that sort of thing because of potentially being hacked by chinese authorities i mean what was that was that a reality no absolutely and i had i had a burner phone burner laptop we had to download uh, this um my 22 app which um um some uh, I can't remember where I read it now, but before the games, it was sort of revealed that it was quite easy um, for um, if, if, if the authorities were uh, inclined to sort of listen to to calls on that on that app. So um, uh, and even to be honest, I, I, you know, I was writing about China and human rights, and there was always that nagging fear that, it, that they might tell you you tested positive for uh, COVID even when you haven't, didn't have it. So I brought some lateral flow tests with me. Um, so that if I did test positive, uh, I could check that myself to make sure the authorities weren't, um, you know, because again, I, I was told by by some people, China were likely to kind of more closely scrutinize um, the sort of Western liberal press, you know, the sort of Guardian, the New York Times and, and so on. Um, but 
I, I would say that all the promises that we were, were made beforehand that we would be allowed sort of free speech in our bubble, um, that, that, that turned out to be true. So at least that was something. Yeah. Hmm. So let's move on to the, the games itself. And obviously today we're talking about these sort of mass events, the Olympic Games, things like the Commonwealth Games, that, and as, as you've just des- described, some of the experiences of the Winter Olympics. If you had to sort of praise your experience of your, the Winter Olympics this year against all the other events that you've covered, and you have covered many of them, where do you think it sits? Is it is it growing? Is it expanding? Is it good, bad? Is it in danger? Um, I mean, these games were the strangest and and most surreal I've ever been. There's my six Olympic Games um, because for the reasons we've discussed, uh, the sport and that kind of gallows camaraderie that we had, of those of us out there, still made it worthwhile. And 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 the Camilla Believa, um story was um, extraordinary and one of the, the great and tragic Olympic stories I think we you know we've ever seen. Um, in terms of sustainability, I think that's a good question. Um, a lot of the events were held in, in, in Beijing themselves, but others were held in, in the mountains. And, and uh, I went up to see, just to give you one example, Andrew Musgrave and um, our, our alpine skier. And I got a special games taxi to a train station, then got a train, two buses and three gondolas um, to get there. Um, and then, um, I, and then back as well. And I think there was about seven hours of traveling time in total. And, you know, I could have gone from, from my home in London to Manchester or Liverpool or Newcastle in that time. And, and I think I, I wrote about 300 words on that event. So, and I think Milan Cortina will be, um, will have similar issues. There won't obviously be all the, um, the security and the COVID, um, and, and, and lack of various things, but, there'll be similar issues because the games have got bigger. There's a lot of events and, and, um, and making it from the land to the mountains will not be easy to cover. I mean, we're not talking about Albertville and Lillehammer and sort of back then where you didn't have all these events. So um, yeah, definitely that presents future challenges for the Olympic movement. I know that Ross has become a bit of a fan of the Olympic Games, particularly the Winter Olympics over the last couple of weeks. But I know they were speaking to David Epstein in this podcast today, and he wrote a piece talking about the fact that uh, viewership numbers are down uh, on the Winter Olympics, that there is a, a sense that the integrity of the Games is under is in question. Um, would you agree or disagree with that? Uh, I mean, clearly, I mean, if you go back, Sochi, not, not at the time, but was dominated uh, by doping scandal uh pyeongchang it, it that issue lingered over should the russians should they could uh, shouldn't compete similarly here uh Valieva was a huge story i take a slightly different view only in the sense that as a journalist it does make all this intrigue makes for great copy and it makes for great stories and um all the the many things i wrote on Valieva trumped almost everything i wrote except for a piece about athletes complaining about the food and, and everything else at the start of the games. I mean, we were sort of, you know, several hundred, everything I wrote in Valieva got several hundred thousand uh, reads, sometimes in the millions. Um, so I think, I don't want to be a, a sort of Puritan and Babylon about this. You know, it, it's not just about the sport. You know, you need the narrative. When, when there's controversy, when there's shocking stories, it does feed into a more interesting uh, games. Um at the same time, if you're an athlete and you don't trust what you see on the field of play, 
I can understand why um, you would also be unhappy about that. Should the Olympics be concerned that the biggest uh, impact it makes is for its scandals and not its participation and its performances? I mean, you had you had in in Beijing, you had Eileen Gu was probably the big name, if only because it was it was a local medal, quote unquote local. Uh, you had great stories. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed Norway in the in the Nordic events, the skiing and the biathlon. The, Jacob, Lindsay Jacob Ellis winning in that snow, in the snowboard individual and team. These were terrific events, but dwarfed in comparison. And it feels to me that when the Olympics are becoming more about what happens off the field than ice, snow, whatever, than on it, then that's the first sign of a of a decaying brand. Yeah, perhaps. And I, I would say that you, if you went back to every Olympics, you would you would find the two hand in hand: mm. sport, politics, controversy. I mean. I mean, you know, Moscow and LA, you know, there were issues there clearly with boycotts. 88, the first time in, in, in Seoul, there was issues there about, you know, would people, would people care? 96 Atlanta, we had um, the bombing at one point and we had all sorts of other issues going on behind the scenes. It's Salt yeah. Lake City. I mean, you could almost, each of them, you could you could pick the, the great moments on, on the field and, and, and off it. And uh, I don't think it was that much different. At the same time, when... The IOC appears so tone deaf when it comes to issues of um, Russian interference and so on, and when it seems almost to bend over backwards to um, allow them to compete, uh, it's not a great look. Um, so, yeah, fair points. Good, good points. Do you, how many of the six is it? Two winter, four summer, or is it three, three? Uh, four, four, four uh, summer, two winter. How does the character of the Winter Olympics compare to that of the Summer Olympics from your perspective? Uh, in many ways, I, I enjoy the, the winters more. Obviously, the summers are bigger, but as a British journalist, inevitably, you, you end up slightly becoming a Team GB correspondent. Now, it's a little bit different for me because I cover track and field a lot, and uh, you know I pick the biggest stories of the day, and often it's you know, the 100 metres or Farhan Benjamin and the 400 metre hurdle. So I don't quite get as much as other journalists. But in the winters, you get much more scope um, to write about great stories and great people and great athletes. So I was able to write about Sean, Sean White. I was able to, to write, um, you know, about Eileen Goo. I was able to write um, uh, about so many other athletes that weren't British. And, and that, that's what I like. And, and also, there's, there is the thrill of the new. There is that sort of, I think most of us, we know many of the, the characters and the sports for the summer games, but we we don't watch figure skating every week. We don't watch snowboard cross every week. So um, it's kind of you know it's almost like being kids again when we we get to watch these sports perhaps for the first mm. time or perhaps certainly for the first time in every, every four years. Well, I mean, I love the novelty value, and I've said to Mike many times in the last two weeks since. If had it not been for an accident of latitude and longitude, I would have been a biathlete because I think. <laughs> In fact, I'm still trying to persuade the guy has to invent bicycling biathlon so that I can do that. Did you ever reach consensus among your peers about which Winter Olympic sport would kill you the fastest? Because I saw you tweeting about that one day. I, I think I think really it would probably be, I didn't go up to the ski jump because of, um, but I spoke to a couple of uh, journalists that did and they said they, they went right to the top and looked down and they basically said, you know, I think really, if you, yeah, if you, if you, if you only, you know, uh, you know, tore an ACL or something, you'd probably feel you've, you've had got a away good with, day out. Away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the point being that we, we look at these winter sports and I just think, how, how on earth does anyone ever do that for the first time? 
And I'm with you. Ski jump. I remember being in Japan for the Rugby World Cup in 2019 and I went to Hakuba, which is where they held the, some of their winter sports. And that was, I mean, it's terrifying. Have you ever been to the top of a ski jump? <laughs> I, I'd never it's, been there, but I've seen pictures of oh, from the top of a ski jump. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing what they do, really. It's uh, spectacular. And, and so following on from that point uh, about the winter Olympics, what I love about it, most sports, the high level of jeopardy there, you don't get um, in this. And you do, obviously, in some summer summer sports, but I think fewer. If Adam Peaty turns up in any sort of shape, um, you know, for the 100-meter breaststroke final, he was going to win right. because he had such a big advantage. You know, even the world's best speed skaters knew that one wrong blade uh, you know, could, would, would ruin their chances. You know, we, you know, we had Charlotte Banks in Britain. She was, you know, the world champion that went snowboard cross. She made one small error at a turn, and that was how a Winter Olympics over. And I think there is more of that uh, in um, in the winters, which adds, adds to the fun, uh, you know, and the jeopardy of it. Well, I mean, you look downhill skiing, Michaela Schriffen, same thing. Um, yeah, there, there are plenty of examples of that. And it is amazing when you watch it and you think, actually, that's four years' worth of work gone in, in a half a second because of someone else's mistake sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and going back to Valieva, we had, um, I mean, I was chatting to, I mean, I don't cover figure skating, figure skating very much and I'm aware of my limitations. So I got there uh, for both the individual events sort of four or five hours before and I could see them all practicing their routines before they actually went out on the ice. And I was sat next to three NBC researchers who were all absolute experts. And they were saying that Valieva is the best female figure skater in history. And yet, you know, she couldn't deal with the, you know, the, the understandably couldn't deal with all the pressure she'd faced. While, um, you know, one of her compatriots, Alexandra uh, Tersa, uh, who I pronounced that correctly, she did five quads and still didn't win. And then she's mm. raging afterwards. I hate this sport. I'm never going to compete again. I mean, it was just tremendous drama. I mean, we'll get onto that, I'm sure, with a big, big focus yeah. in a moment. But why, why do they say she's the best? Is it is she the equivalent of Simone Biles? In, in that sport in terms of her athleticism or is it just actually technical proficiency and because I watched her short track performance and uh, as a complete non-expert she did look different to anyone else but I don't understand why they yeah they they were talking about both technically and also emotion uh, the way she was able to dance and the things she was able to to, to do not just the, the the spins and the jumps but her flexibility and her I mean I, I watched her twice in um, on a small ice rink, kind of before she, um, you know, in the days up to her individual competition. Um, and another thing that got me was the speed of the way she skated um, was just, you know, the, the, I'm using in very non-technical terms, but the speed and the flow and the way she was able to shift and then just do all these incredible um, elements was 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 extraordinary and. Um, and they sort of essentially said that everything that she did was at a sort of a higher level than, mm. than her competitors, except obviously on, on, on the night itself. Aside from my earlier sort of tongue-in-cheek question about which is the most spectacular and dangerous, what, what was the most enjoyable event for you to watch? I mean, I mean the snowboard cross was great, um, just because, again, uh, but when you were at the bottom of the – and the big air was amazing as well, um, uh, just – because you know you've got the backdrop to those industrial. Um, yeah, this looked like a down. set of, yeah. the, of the Simpsons with the Springfield cooling tires exactly. in the background. Um, yeah. 
I spent far too much time at the curling, which, um, <laughs> fact, you know, if you love curling, that's great. But I, I, I mean, it just le- it left me left me cold, um, quite literally, because it was quite it wasn't it was quite chilly in there. Um, but no, um, it, it, going back, it was the to cover the figure skating uh, because again, when you're up that close, and I mean, I um, my great uncle trained um, world champion boxers, um, so I've been in his gym quite a lot, and I've seen what they've able to do up close. You know, I've been some someone's lucky enough to sort of sit and watch people like Bolt on practice tracks, but seeing Valieva and seeing Tersova um, up close, uh, you know, literally three meters away from them when they were doing some of their moves, was one of the most extraordinary things in my sort of twenty-plus year journalism career. So, um, hmm. yeah, and then then the actual competition itself as it unfolded was just extraordinary so there's a sense there when you're watching things like figure skating that things are always on the app there there's almost like where the sky is quite literally the limit because if you watched ice skating in the Torval and Dean days you know you would have been amazed by it but I watched a bit of the ice skating and it felt like it had, it had moved so far forward from those days um, and it, it seems like it just continues to get better and better, which almost seems impossible because surely there is a limit to what you can do on in in terms of a, a routine. No, absolutely. Uh, you, I actually watched the Tour and Dean Bolero uh, <laughs> again, and uh, while it's beautiful, it's sort of it's it's, it's a timepiece. Mm. You look back and think, and, and and even last night I was chatting to Jenny Jones, who um, won a, a medal in 2014 uh, for Britain in the slope style. And she sort of said, it's a different event now hmm. uh, at the very top because there are five or six um, women that are just doing things that no one was doing eight years ago. And that's um, it's partly because these are newer sports. Um, and and in, the fact, in the case of figure skating, they sort of changed it a little bit. So the, the, judge, the way the judging is now, a lot of it is based on the big moves. Um, some think it's become a bit, more, bit too much of a jumping contest. But regardless, um, yeah. That, that's sport, I guess. You know, it um, it, it it does change and it evolves and, and it moves on. Yeah, it's not dissimilar to watching Nadal, Djokovic compared to watching McEnroe, Connors. It's these things resemble one another only very slightly. Same thing with Nadia Comaneci, who in nineteen seventy six did things that today wouldn't even make the warm up routine. Um, and 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 you said earlier that the eventual silver medalist did four five quads in one routine. Am I right in saying that the first ever quad was performed only the week before by Valley Over? Exactly. exactly. So, so at, the, at, the, at the Olympics, right. yes. Right, yeah. And also on the men's side, there was a, Nathan Chen, I think, was the winner. And that was, he also did some things that had never been seen before. So, Yeah, no, I was, I was there for that as well. And that was, um, was also extraordinary. And, uh, you know, he danced to um, Elton John's Rocket, Rocket Man and... Uh, uh, yeah, he was. Um, yeah, he was. He was absolutely dazzling too. You know, it was interesting. We spoke to um, one of the ice hockey experts in the build-up to the Winter Olympics, and um, he was suggesting that uh, many of the top ice hockey players d- didn't attend the Olympic Games because they were more inclined to stay with their professional teams uh, in, in the US. The question I'm leading to is: Do you get a sense from the athletes that the Winter Olympics are still important to them? Or are, is the professional game and the professional sport an element that is even more important? Because every one of those sports has a professional element to it. Um, I think in the summer, uh, almost every sport, not tennis, uh, would be an obvious exception, but almost every sport is what 
the athletes are gearing up for for the four years. Certainly, football is an exception, right, Sean? I mean, football football, yeah. football really shouldn't be at the Olympics in its current format. I, it's, I, I agree. But it's yeah. in most, most sports, for most athletes, it's the, the pinnacle. Um, the Winter Games is a little bit more complicated. Partly, as you say, from the one side, it's things like ice hockey, where I think they uh, it's complicated because it's difficult to get all the, you know, the, the uh, NHL to agree, and they did, and then COVID struck. But I think the other thing, and I think it's changing a little bit, but among the, um, I guess, the tricks and flicks department, so, you know, the, the half pipes and the snowboarders and, 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 and slope style and so on, for them, a lot of it, their biggest thrill they get is doing amazing tricks, not a gold medal. So certainly uh, when I was chatting to a bunch of British snowboarders, um, people like Billy Morgan who won bronze in 2018, um, a few years ago, for them, the Olympic Games was another event. It was a cool event, but actually, for them, they quite liked the thrill of their first ever name a trick would have yeah. would have beaten a medal. Mm. Um, and I think that perhaps is slightly changing now uh, among those. Um, uh, but there is still that element of some people. It's it's for them. It's the the purity of the sport and the and and sort of straying into new areas matters more than the win and gold medal. Which I think is interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So let's move on to some. I mean, you, you talked a bit about the doping cases. Uh, there, there was obviously some politics involved because there was some discussion. The Russians have been obviously omitted from the Olympics as a country for a number of years now. But Putin was there at the at the at the games, and there was all sorts of drama around that. Is there a, was there political controversies that that sort of other than that that came through? Well, the, the lighting of the flame kicked the games off with one. So. <laughs> yeah, there was there was that 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 was sort of um, what happened in the black <laughs> What happened with the lighting yeah. of the flame? Sean, there was a, a Uyghur Wig, a was chosen um, as one of the two um, Uyghur cross country skier from China. Uh, I'm not going to pronounce uh, her name. Uh, so that 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 kicked things off. We had sort of Peng Shui. People were asking beforehand where was Peng Shui. She seemed to be everywhere in, in, in China, and she also gave an interview to Le Keep. But we really came sort of nowhere close to knowing really the, the true ins and outs of our situation. The keep admitted their the questions had to be submitted in advance. And um and I wrote in a sort of a closing piece. I think that the Chinese will, will be happy because while questions were raised and while um the human right human rights stuff, you know, definitely got an air, an airing at various points, for them, you know, China, they finished third in medal table, they had a bunch of new heroes, it, you know they will regard it very much still as um, a sort of propaganda victory. But of course, sport and politics always are linked to linked. And anyone that says otherwise is, you know, is, is naive or stupid. There was the case of the, was it a, I forget what event, but a Georgian athlete who held up a peace sign at a medal ceremony. Or Ukrainian, sorry, not Georgian, Ukrainian. Ukrainian. Yes. Yeah, I don't know where I got Georgia from there. Ukrainian. But the IOC, as far as I know, didn't ever implement their, I think it's Article 50 that supposedly bans athletes for political statements. Is that right? Um, yeah, it wasn't on the podium, and they uh, and they uh, they did release a statement that sort of said this was just a general call for peace. Mm. So they were fine with it, which I think actually, in fairness, I see was was the right decision. Mm. The, the big story, of course, is yeah. Valieva. Like we can talk about all the controversy in the world, but the thing that saved the Chinese from scrutiny off the <laughs> off the ice was the Valieva controversy. And uh, you've spoken a little bit about it, and I th- but I thought it would be really interesting to hear more detail on that and, and explain this to the listeners what exactly what happened and how it was allowed to happen. Because my assessment of it is that it was one 
and I'm, I'm, not, I'm hesitant to say unfortunate because you'd like to design a system that doesn't allow for unfortunate mistakes. But once the first mistake was made, there was no way to redeem the situation. Yeah, so to sort of take it back to the very start, um, Russia win the team gold competition uh, uh, on the, I think, 7th of February. Um, a day later, um, her sample from an event she took part in the Russian Championships on the 25th of December was tested and shown to have a positive um, test for the, the, the drug TM, TMZ. Now, what had happened was that sample had gone to a, a Swedish laboratory, but they'd had a bunch of COVID cases, which meant that her sample, which normally would have been looked at within a week or perhaps two weeks, wasn't. So that was the first, that was the big mistake that Ross refers to. Mm. Sean, just to, just before you go on, was there any truth in, and maybe we're disrupting the linear telling of the story here. So actually, let me park that question and allow you to continue. Apologies. Okay, no, no, it's, it's fine. And then and then on the a Wednesday, it emerges through Inside the Games um, that um, uh, there was that, the reason why the team competition, they hadn't had a podium ceremony because there was a legal issue going. And then Inside the Games, then I think named Valieva first. Now I, I don't think it is. Um, it's not a coincidence that inside the games is funded by a lot of IFs that have Russian money, and um, the working theory among myself, and this is based on speaking to a number of sources, that actually it was probably Russia that wanted the story out there, um, which I've not written, and maybe huh. you should. Maybe that's maybe that's one too. Um, but certainly among. The working assumption is that it probably came from Russia. Uh, someone in Russia gave that story to Inside the Games. Um, and then that set off a huge media storm. Um, I was there, uh, I can't remember, honestly, it was Thursday or Friday. I think it was the Friday when um, Valieva was practicing and one of my colleagues asked her, was she a cheat? And that then led to Russian journalists, you know, taking pictures and getting very angry with him and publishing his name and he had an awful lot of abuse online um and she continued to practice and uh, and essentially what had happened is the russian anti-doping um, authorities had suspended her but then on appeal had allowed her to compete uh um the ioc um world anti-doping agency and, and the isu went to cas court of arbitration of sport which then had a hearing on the sunday night and on monday said that she should be allowed to compete in the individual event which i i think i agree with i um others wouldn't but essentially they said that it would cause her irreparable terrible harm if she wasn't if she you know they banned her and then her drugs test you know was they opened the b sample up say and uh, it was negative so effectively she was allowed to compete and then you know in front of the world's media we all saw what happened yeah so so let's go into a little bit of detail on that there was a when the cast decision was published that allowed her to compete their rationale was that she was a minor 15 years old and so they applied what is protected category designation to her you get protected individuals now what what could happen as i understand it is that if in the future, with the benefit of some time and space, they have a hearing for Valieva and they decide that she did have the drug in her system, but it was inadvertent use on her part because either it's accidental or it's given to her by a doctor. And as a 15-year-old, she's, I mean, who's she going to say no to the doctor? She says, take this, it'll help you. What, what they could do is not suspend her at all. They could effectively seal the record and allow her to continue. Do I have that understanding right? Yeah, the other thing they could also do is say, um, 
because of all this and because you're a minor, uh, we will ban you, but we'll ban you for shorter than the 44 days between the time you mm. had the ban on the 25th and you competed in the Olympics in the team event. And if that was the case, she would then be allowed to keep and Russia would be allowed to keep its um, team medal. So, so yes, and when you understand that, you can actually see why CAS went the way they did because WADA's objection was that this protected individual designation shouldn't apply to provisional suspensions. But in the circumstances that they found themselves in, if they didn't apply it then, there'd be no good outcome at all possible. So I think they had to almost place a bet and, and almost kick the can down the road, which is highly unsatisfactory for every other athlete who competes. And that's why the moment it was announced that this case was hanging over the gold medal favorites and a medalist already, there was no good outcome. It was a, it was a complete screw up from the start. And that's why I wanted to ask you, WADA said, accused rather, Russia of not labeling Valieva's sample as a high priority sample when it sent it to the lab. Is that true or would any sample normally have been analyzed within seven to 10 days? I think both things are, are true. I think Russia could have done it, but I think it's also, it's not, it's not unreasonable for Russia not to do it because we were at that point, we were still more than a month away from the, um, the Winter Olympics. And if every sample is tested for seven to 10 days, I think, I think that criticism of the Russian anti-doping authorities was was a bit unfair because in any normal times that sample should have been tested and I think we should be more looking at um, the Swedish lab for not expediting all tests really done in December and early January before the Olympics mm. you know there must be ways that they could have done it personally and since this happened obviously now the world watches this 15 year old fall twice and end up fourth Who's happy as a consequence of that? Russia, obviously, because they get a medal ceremony for one and two. They win gold and silver. The IOC is probably relatively relieved because they get a medal ceremony, which they wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, but but so I'm just but I've seen so much since that the fallout has been enormous to the extent that people have said that actually they now need age restrictions in Olympic Games. There've been accusations that pushing Valieva as hard as they did amounts to child trafficking, which I think is a nuclear take. Uh, her coach didn't help by basically shouting at her the moment she came off the, off the ice in tears. Where do you stand on the whole 15-year-olds uh, being exploited for Olympic medals? And, and the potential, let's face it, that if, if kids are protected from doping claims, why would ruthless countries not dope more children? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. No, I think they're all very good points. I mean, I think um, Valieva's coach, Ituri Tukbaritsa, which I probably pronounced terribly, she also coached the other two Russians um, that finished first and second, is an absolutely fascinating case. Um, uh, her her, her centre, her um, skating centre in, in Russia is known as a factory, essentially, that pumps out amazing skaters. I was told by someone that children as young as six are, um, are spending hours and hours every day practising. Um, she has a 12-year-old that 
that can do a quad already. Mm. And she is seen in four years time as the one that we'll all be talking about. Um, uh, so uh, in one way, she's an extraordinary coach on the other how can this be normal you know we've seen it's not i don't want to make this just about russia we've seen in the us we've seen in the uk um about gymnastics as well some the way the kids are treated and abused either physically or sexually it, 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 it's clearly a problem um it, it's a very difficult question because i think the olympics wants to reward excellence and when it comes to gymnastics when it comes to figure skating it's a sad fact of life that you're probably going to be better at 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 than you are in your 20s because um, when puberty hits or when um, gradually get older, you, you sometimes can't do the moves you can normally do. Um, personally, I think, though, that it, it's... It, I mean, Sky Brown was 13 when she competed in, in the Summer Olympics. It, it's too it's too young. I think we, at some point we have to draw a line. And where you draw that line, I think you can... It opens a debate, but 13, 14, I could be 15. It's, it, it really is too young. Um for all the reasons you suggest, but also for the, I mean, can you imagine the emotional pressures that Ava had to deal with? And I have a great deal of sympathy for her because she wouldn't have taken the drug in isolation. She may not have even known that she was taking it. And then she had, you know, the world's glare on her for, you know, 10 days and, uh, you know, no wonder she fell a couple of times in the, in, in, in the free skating program. Mm, indeed. I mean, there, there was a 13-year-old gold medalist in Tokyo. After the woman, skateboarding was won by a 13-year-old and celebrated. So I think people must appreciate that if you want that, then you'll invite this. You can't have, you can't have the celebration of great performances without also inviting the possibility here. So a little bit of balance back then would have been nice too. No, completely. I mean, the Brits were saying they managed to lobby the IOC to get Sky Brown's father into Olympic Village, so he stayed with her. So they said that was at least a way of uh, protecting her. But um, no, I have a 13-year-old daughter, and the idea that she would, you know, she's talented in lots of different ways, but the idea she would be, you know, in Olympic Village is just, yeah, just seems crazy to me. So on Valieva, what do do we think, Cap? I mean, aside from the fact that they had all these... uh administrative failures, letting her down, letting other athletes down, because it's easy to focus on her, the 15-year-old, but, I mean, imagine the sympathy you must feel for other athletes who are denied their, their medal ceremonies and potentially their medals. Let's, let's forget about the ceremony. What about the medal you might have lost? When, when that story broke and it was announced that there was heart medication, my mind went back to Maldonium, which was a very similar scenario in that it was predominantly being used by athletes from the East. And so you had again, uh, Eastern Europe, sorry. You had again a Russian athlete who was on, well, apparently heart meds. And then of course it came out that she also declared in her doping form two other substances, both of which are legal, carnitine and uh, another supplement or substance called hypoxin, both which have allegedly heart benefits or benefits for blood flow to the heart, blood pressure and heart function. What do you? What's your take on what exactly is going on there? I mean, I, I think there are two points to make here. First of all, I think there is a long history in Russia of that sort of grey area stuff, which um, I mean, Amel Donu at some point was sort of legal, but they're not legal. Um, same with TMZ; it was illegal in competition, but out of competition, it was fine until a few years ago. Mm. Um, and, and so I think that's worth saying. And they were they they looking not no they're not alone in this, but they're clearly they're they're sort of they're willing to give even young athletes stuff that you know they shouldn't be giving. Um, 
The second point is I was chatting against these NPC experts and they were saying that Valieva was always seen as an exceptional talent, even a couple of years ago. But a couple of years ago, they said that towards the end of her routines, she was clearly getting tired. She was struggled to sort of do the big jumps in the second half of that sort of four minute 20 routine. So perhaps this was an attempt hmm. to um, you know, make us um, her stronger in that last half and make, you know, make her heart stronger, um, cardio vascularly better. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, when, when, when it was only the TMZ, the drug, it, it was at that point in my mind, likeliest to have been a doctor mistake or a nefarious doctor giving her something she was unaware of. But when when we then discovered that there were two other substances with potentially the same effects, that, that looks more like a designed program. And on that, at the time of the meldonium, I remember speaking to someone who was a physician with the in the Soviet former Soviet countries. And he said to me that there is very much a cultural difference around how these medications are used. When we hear about 15-year-olds or even Sharapova back then, who I think was in her mid to late 20s, taking drugs that treat conditions that we think of as being prevalent in the elderly, we are shocked. Why would you give a healthy person these drugs? Apparently in, this, in Russia, it's normalized because they use the drugs almost prophylactically to prevent the possible development of something in the future. So there might well be a cultural difference there. And that was then confirmed to me actually in talking to another Olympic doctor two weeks ago who said that they all know that this practice goes on with supplements and medicines that are used where we would wait for the problem. They use it in advance of the potential problem. So that certainly is there. I'm not, and I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying that's, that's the, for me, the explanation for why Almost always, to answer a question you wrote, why always Russia? <laughs> That's probably one of the reasons. No, I agree, absolutely. So what happened, last question, and then, and then we'll let you go, Sean, you've been good with your time. What happens next in that case? Where, do, where does it go? It's a good question. I mean, um, uh, as you all know, that she was allowed to compete, and we had a lot of um, uh, erroneous headlines, particularly, and, and takes, particularly in America, that were sort of like, they're letting this jug, jug cheat compete. Mm. She's not yet a drug cheat. She's only, as far as we know, only the A sample has been tested. So the so B samples has to be tested. Her case still has to, you know, work its way through various stages. Uh, no doubt, it'll probably go to the court of arbitration for sport. I imagine in a few months' time, and then we will learn both whether she is banned um, and how long her ban is. And then at that point, we will see whether the, the Russians uh, have their med medals from the team event taken away. Whether Valieva still wins gold. Um, Interestingly, the, the Russians have already said they're going to fight this all the way to CAS to keep those medals. Um, and the final point is that I was told that it's a bit like the 4x100 relay. Um, in a team, it's, it, it's not in soccer. If one of your players doped, the team would still keep a medal because it's a team event. This, though, is in the skating, it's classified more as the uh, 4x100 relay, mm. say, so that um, if one of your competitors, one of your team dopes, you all lose the medal. Yeah, it's going to be another situation there, Sean, where like no matter what they do, they're going to face backlash because, like, let's face it, the the, the ban on Russia is the most ludicrous sanction, in, ineffective, impotent sanction ever in sport because it's ROC, but everyone knows what they're watching. And they're either going to let them keep the medal because she's a protected athlete or they're going to take that medal away and then, and well, which at least will satisfy a larger number of groups, but it would be inconsistent with how they've handled it to date. Absolutely, and yet, and the wheels spin, and probably 
two years time in Paris or, or four years time in Milan Cortina will be um, something similar will, will, will raise and there'll still be other issues. You know? just, for, so it goes. just for the purposes of explanation, I mean, we talk about Russian Olympic Committee athletes. What, what's, the, what's the basis of those athletes being allowed to compete against just Russian athletes? I mean, what, what, what is the supposed theory behind that? I mean, again, this is quite a long one, but you go back to first of all Sochi, and then and and afterwards it was discovered that they were essentially doping their athletes at the games, and there was famously um, they would have positive steroid samples that were passed through a mouse hole in the anti-doping lab, and then cleaned up, and then allowed through, and so that led to the sort of sort of half ban in in 2016 and 2018. But then um, at December 2019, the World Anti-Doping Agency were able to confirm that um, the Moscow, they were trying to prosecute more cases from 2014. And they discovered that um, the Moscow lab data had all been manipulated. So that led to, you'll remember the headlines time, Russia being banned. But it wasn't really, it was essentially they were banned for hosting world events for two years and they were banned for being called Russia for a couple of years, hence Russian Olympic Committee. But they were still, you know, wearing the white, blue and red of Russia. You know, um, the athletes were still all here. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a, a, as, as Ross said, it was a, it was an impotent ban. It was almost the equivalent of your kid sets fire to, you know, to your house and you put him on the naughty step for five minutes. You know, that's, that's what it was really. Well, not even that. You just, you just tell him he's on the naughty step, but he can go anywhere he wants anyway. Because I mean, yeah, all, all I think all they did is they couldn't hear the anthem at medal ceremonies, right? That was about um, the extent yeah, of the punishment. It was crazy. Uh, yeah, and, and not and not being yeah not being actual Russia themselves, not having Russia on their uh, uniform. Yeah, the yet. flag wasn't allowed, and they weren't allowed to hear the anthem. Other than that, it just so they weren't verified or tested before the games just to verify them as clean athletes. Well, that's what they tried to do for I think 2016. If you were able to prove that you weren't tied up in, in all the nefarious things that had gone on mm. before that you were allowed in. And that's why in those 2016 games, there were probably half a dozen athletes. But I, I just, I mean, and Cass had to set up an emergency, um, basically, office to hear all these applications from Russian athletes trying to distance themselves from the system. But I think over time, that became more and more difficult to do. And you can't individually screen every single applicant. So they eventually just said, you're all allowed in, but you're just not re representing Russia. <laughs> yeah. The, the only, the only exception is like now is athletics. They still have a, a rule where, um, uh, the Russians are called the authorized neutral athletes and they still every year have to sort of satisfy, um, world athletics, um, that they are clean as far as they can tell by, you know, being made available, having a certain number of tests every year, et cetera, et cetera. Because a lot of these uh, Russian athletes are competing in closed cities where it's hard to be tested. And, and so world athletics are, are strict. But as far as I know, they're the only ones that apply such, such but, but, stringent... And, and, uh, and also, just a last word on that is, despite the fact that it was the Russian anti-doping system that doped systematically in Sochi, despite the fact that, as Sean has just said, they manipulated the data, that body still exists. Because in the case of Valieva, and I was this is what surprised me, is... Her sample was initially collected by Russian anti-doping. The ban initially was by Russian anti-doping. Lifting the ban, provis the provisional suspension, was the Russian anti-doping disciplinary committee. So they're still a, a functional entity, but without any credibility. And that's why the world looks at this and says, actually, uh, what's going on here? And I mean, we'll, we'll discuss integrity in the Olympics later, but that's, uh, there, there is none when it comes to this issue. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that, we were going on almost to a fundamental flaw with the anti-doping system, really. We uh, essentially, uh, athletes are tested predominantly by their own countries. Mm. Uh, I know it's sometimes, you know, you know, I mean, the athletics integrity unit, you know, in athletics is very good. That does its own tests. You'll have individual sports federations that will do your own, their own tests. But essentially, most tests of athletes will be done by people uh, in their anti-doping from their own country, right. which obviously leads to issues. And in this case, it's we know that you were guilty of systematic doping, manipulating data. Your country's banned from the Olympics, but you carry on like normal and just send them under the Russian Olympic Committee flag. It's 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 just I can understand why people look at this and say that you know there were all those you, you know the coaches of some of her rivals, Veliova, saying this is a farce and so on. They really need to get a grip on it, but I think they won't. I'd be surprised if they did. So, a big thanks to Sean Ingle and a man who has, uh, I guess for Ross and I, we would love to do his job, and I did do his job to some extent as a sports journalist for many years, but he travels all the way around the world and gets to experience things that we often just talk about in this pod, and I'm sure that we will have him back on the podcast mm. uh, sometime in the future. I don't know if I could do his job, by the way. Yes, he is a very I mean, you're, you're, in the, you're in the mud, eh? like the, you're in the, well, it's worse than mud sometimes. But yeah. one thing I will say about him is he does it with such integrity. Yeah, that uh, that's why he's always worth having on. Anyway, yeah, that's great, all. great read as well. So if you want to follow Sean, obviously he's on Twitter, but also reading the Guardian. I mean, I love that publication mm -hmm. as it is online, and it is fascinating the stuff that they have on there. His stuff is particularly good. So our next guest is David Epstein, who has been on our podcast before. David is the New York Times best-selling author of Range: Why Generous Triumph in a Specialized World, and also the bestseller The Sports Gene. He has a master's degree in environmental science and journalism and has worked as an investigative reporter for ProPublica and a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and he lives in Washington in the United States and uh, the reason why we're talking to, to David is that he always has an amazing perspective because he has so much contact with so many key people in the sporting world and not just in the sporting world but outside of it as well and whenever he, we have a discussion with him I almost want to share what he says with the people that we're talking about to say, if you need somebody to solve or disrupt or get your organization better, he's the guy you should talk to. He's, he's a disruptor, but a thinker and an academic all in one. Yeah, I mean, my conversations, I've known David for 15 years now, maybe. And conversations with David in a pub in New York are, in a way, part of the, the genesis or origin story of this podcast because talking to him makes you think, actually, these conversations are so fascinating. We have to record them and put them out there. And so when the opportunity comes to get him on the podcast, then, of course, we must do it because there are people in the world who read a lot and who know stuff. And then there are people in the world who think creatively and come up with new ideas. But you very rarely find those characteristics in the same person. Hmm. And David, I don't know how he does it, but he's, he, he just assimilates so much information. He accumulates it, as you say. Then he seems to process it and think about it, interpret it, put his own insights on it, and then communicate it back in a way that is unique. I, I don't know anyone else who does it. And so what happened was a couple of weeks ago, he, he publishes a newsletter every week. You can find it. It's called Range Widely. Oh, fantastic. And it's very rarely on sport these days. He's now moved into medical science and management and administration. And he'll give you marriage counseling if you're into that because some of the <laughs> stuff he talks about has implications for that. But two weeks ago, he interviewed a U.S. bobsled gold medalist who's now on the U.S. Olympic Committee. And they spoke about the integrity problem that the games have. And that was why we thought, 
we must get David on for this subject. And you'll hear, I mean, we talk, we talk marketing, we talk stoping scandals. It's just, just revelationary. Here he is, David Epstein. So welcome, Dave. Very, very early for you in Washington at the moment. And uh, for us, it's early afternoon. So thank you very much for getting out really early. Um, but we, we just wanted to chat to you. Uh, we, we've just been speaking to um, a journalist working for The Guardian and uh, just got a bit of an insight from him about the Beijing Winter Olympics. And uh, you recently did an interview where you talked specifically about the integrity of the Games, um, talking to Steve Mesler, who is part of the US Paralympic and Olympic Committee. Just give us a bit of a pricey of some of the things that you discussed in that interview with him. Yeah, and Steve's also a gold medalist from 2010 yeah. um, and, and runs a nonprofit that connects Olympians and Paralympians to classrooms. So it's like his whole professional life revolves around the Olympics. And he lives and breathes Olympics. And, and sort of what I found interesting and sort of alarming was as long as I've known him, he's been like, the Olympics can be this catalyst for powerful change and all these things. And now he's sort of saying the Olympics are facing an existential crisis because we have the last six Olympics have been embroiled in, you know, some form of rushing doping controversy or another. Um, you know, last year there was a, a scandal with the head of international biathlon who was caught up in taking bribes of cash and prostitution and all these sorts of things. And, you know, he was looking at the number of cities that are bidding to host Olympics now. And he was talking a little bit about a couple of years ago how Norway leaked the demands from the International Olympic Committee when they were visiting to to assess Norway as, as a host city. And there were all these like crazy demands that cost a ton of money. And, you know, they wanted their own lane of traffic and a free yeah. bar and all this stuff. And it's just like one thing after another has degraded kind of the image that I think the Olympic movement is trying to sell to the point where the IOC is kind of like, paying cities essentially to start taking the Olympics. And so mm. I think he sees the writing on the wall and feels like, you know, you can watch the commercials and see we're selling this one brand of, you know, of values. And then you see the news every, you know, for, for all the years between the two weeks that are Olympics and it's all negative. And I think he, he thinks we are approaching a point where a city won't even, won't even take the Olympics, even if it, even if it's offered to them. Well, I mean, that's the case. Almost, well, not the latter, but certainly we've seen an evolution in the process because in, and in your newsletter, which people can follow, by the way, it's called Range Widely. This was two weeks ago, I think. Mm -hmm. You spoke about how in, there were only two cities bid for 2024 and they both won. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. Because they LA just said, won. yeah, they just deferred LAs to 2028. Yeah, and then, LA won 2028, didn't even bid on it. And, and the IOC basically gave them 180 million dollars like a lot to invest in youth sports and stuff as an inducement to take yeah. an olympics they didn't bid on and then for 2032 they just said forget about bidding we'll just go to brisbane because yeah so presumably some guys over dinner said we'd like it and they said how much money you got cool done well that that's the other thing about brisbane is it seems like you know maybe somebody i'm sure somebody knows exactly what was involved in that bidding process but but most of the people i've talked to <laughs> that have been involved in olympic bids seem to think nobody got like really a read on how Brisbane was chosen, you know, that it was sort of not very transparent. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you've touched on a few of those things. And I think, you know, as you, as you suggest that the popularity of the event, but I'd like to, what, what I find um, with, with starting this discussion is, 
it, the integrity of the Olympic Games is obviously an important part of the way people perceive the games itself. But sometimes it just comes down to money and also the sexiness yeah. of the sport. And I think maybe we can tackle, yeah. first of all, the money issue, because even the process of bidding for an Olympic Games is costly mm-hmm. before you've even got it. When you yeah. get it, there are very few Olympic Games that actually make money. And sometimes for years afterwards, decades afterwards, cities are still paying for the Olympic Games that they've hosted. Yeah, yeah, I think the the Olympics became sort of had this image as a moneymaker, you know, going back to the 1980s, especially with the LA Games, which were like a big financial success. And then through the 90s, and then I think probably starting in kind of the post 9-11 world, or or maybe even in Sydney um, in 2000, money, like it was, they were hemorrhaging money, right? They're building more and more buildings that wouldn't really be used after the Olympics, security costs spiraling, spiraling out of control. And people continued to make the economic boost argument about the Olympics, but it ceased to be true, essentially. Mm, yeah. And the International Olympic Committee went and said, um, hey, you know, we're going to make sure you don't have to build uh, new stuff that won't be used and we'll try to keep the cost down, but then didn't do it. Right, continued to award it to places that would build stuff that they weren't going to use at all, and you know ended up putting it in countries in in some cases that were, uh, you know, like in Brazil, in countries that were like not really in a great financial place to be shelling out that kind of money, and so again, it was it was a case of saying one thing and and sort of doing the other. And to your point, to your other point about the sexiness of the sport, you know, I think lots of sports have scandals, right? Like soccer, well, football. Or what we call soccer here is has lots of scandals and FIFA has lots of scandals, but then the sport continues to go on and engage people every day of the year. Whereas the Olympics have all this time for bad news and then like two weeks of sports. And so I think from the sexiness of the sports standpoint, when you don't have kind of year round fans, you can't have the ratio of sort of scandal to heartwarming stories and, and expect to survive. Mm, that's a really good point actually, because the Olympics, trades on its novelty and it trades on the fact that every four years you can invest in the success or failure sometimes of, of strangers <laughs> people you don't yeah. really know or follow and when that when that's undermined by the integrity issues then there's really very little left yeah yeah uh, i mean when fifa has a scandal right it's like there's a bunch of attention on it and then 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 the ball rolls out for the world cup or premier league or whatever and that goes away mm. the olympics that doesn't go away for so long and, and in this case it ends up even eclipsing the two weeks that they have to try to generate a lot of a lot of positive press. So I think I said in the newsletter, it reminded me of this research on successful marriages where you need like five positive interactions for every one negative interaction or else like the scoreboard starts progressively going in a bad direction. <laughs> hmm. And I mean, that certainly hasn't been, you know, the ratio, I think, for for the Olympics, even for people who, who love it, like Steve and I. Yeah. I think what's, me, it, what's, it, what's interesting is that... Um, when you look at some sports, there are obviously some sports, as we were talking to Sean Ingle a few moments ago, he's talking about for some sports, the Winter Olympics is still the pinnacle of their sport. Whereas mm-hmm. in sports like ice hockey, for instance, not always right. you don't always get the best players going to the Winter Olympics because of right. their professional careers. If you had to look at the general importance of Olympic Games, and let's maybe even spread this to something like the Commonwealth Games, for instance. Do you think that professional sport has taken away the importance of medals at world events um, to a degree that in the long term, as they become more professional, the importance of a medal becomes less and less important? 
So can you can you describe that again a little bit when you said the importance of metals? What, what do you mean? So by in other metals? words, if if you're a oh oh metals metals so, metals sorry yes yeah, so metals forgive so. Mike's Durban accent <laughs> my South no, African no. accent <laughs> yeah so yeah so how important are metals? So for instance, in yeah. as we talked a little bit about um, you know ice hockey, for instance, we know a lot not right. a lot of the players went to the Winter Olympics. When I think right. about the Summer Olympics, winning a tennis mm-hmm. medal is probably not near, nowhere near as important as winning Wimbledon, right. for instance. But if right. you had to look at it as a whole and project yourself maybe 10 15 20 years down the line will professional sport potentially threaten the future of middle events yeah that you know i think there are some sports that don't seem to me i think you're definitely right you know for things like um tennis and hockey and you know people still basketball still draws some pros but it's nothing like you know winning an nba championship um some of the sports I don't think have made that much progress in that direction. Like skiing obviously has its own world cup circuit and yet the Olympics still seem like a pretty huge deal. And then some of the sports that are, that are more obscure, I think it's kind of like, you know, I I think it is, it is the biggest deal by far. Um, But I do think there's some of that. I do think there's some of that as, as the Olympics kind of prominence fades a little bit, as people have more chance to see the sport, at least that they are interested in um, through the year. Uh, you know, I think it, I think it can decrease some of that, but a lot of that I think has to do with marketing, right? Is like, how good are the human interest stories and how, how much are people paying attention to kind of the human stories? Because the Olympics still have the power to make, um, you know, like Chloe Kim, the half pipe snowboarder who just won her, her second gold. Nobody at the previous Olympics before she won a gold, like even sports fans didn't know her name and probably had never watched the sport. And she became sort of, you know, a celebrity overnight. And so I think the the Olympics still has that power, metal or not metal, to to make someone's story, um, you know, even in an obscure sport, kind of turn them into a sports celebrity. And and I think some of that will continue and maybe be even more powerful than uh, than medals in some ways. I saw actually speaking of Chloe Kim, the big name that emerged out of Beijing now is Eileen Gu, who yeah. would be known to Americans because of her. Is it an American father or mother? Remind me. You'll you'll know better than uh, I do. American father, I believe, That's, and Chinese mother. But she, so she represented China, and that was a controversy in itself. But they were saying that she'll probably be one of the highest paid athletes in the world as a consequence of yep. her success. And the, I guess the question I was getting to is whether the perception of the Olympic Games we we come at it from a very U.S. centric or SA centric viewpoint. <laughs> the last three Winter Olympic Games have all been quite far east, Sochi and then yeah. Korea and China. Do, do you think there's a difference in the way it's being valued in different places around the world? And that the old the I old mean, guard is diminishing and there's a new generation that'll actually take it over? In a way, I mean, I think we're definitely coming at it. You know, I'm definitely coming at it from a US perspective. Um, the games are, are coming back, you know, west for, for a few games in a row now. Mm. Um, but I think there's some reason to, at least right now, um, to think that the U.S. perspective is is an important one because the the Olympics in its current form relies on the U.S. financially. There's no question about it. The U.S. I believe is the only country that has the ability to that has to like you know sign off or can block new top sponsors like kind of like title sponsors for the Olympics. Um, U.S. Uh, TV rights are like in themselves, like half of Olympic revenue or something enormous, right? And so there's just right now no other country uh, that's like that where where the financial, 
you know, at least in its current situation, that the Olympics really rely on the way they do in the U.S. I mean, the U.S., there are all sorts of like odd things like the U.S., you know, most cities to bid, they have to be backed by their federal government financially so that if they can't, if they win the Olympics and they can't, you know, handle it, that the federal government will step in and support them. The U.S. said, no, we won't do that. And yet is allowed to just skirt that rule just because the U.S. is so financially important because of the television rights. So there's various kind of like special treatment that the U.S. gets <laughs> just because of the television rights are so valuable. And so I think for the time being, the Olympics lives or dies on on U.S. television rights. But I think you're absolutely right that, um, you know, I covered the Beijing Olympics in 2008, and there's no question that China wasn't even looking at it as like, is this an economic boon or not? Like they way overspent, mm. you know, they spent an enormous amount of money. But it was about building a you know cultural narrative and national pride and and all those sorts of things, and so I think they were looking at it for different reasons, um, you know, than than um, just like the the economic and and so I do think it's an important perspective and um, yeah. Hmm. In your piece, you wrote, and for those of you who are listening to this, you can go on to davidepstein.com. It's always nice to have a .com behind your name. But the piece you wrote was, the Olympics have an integrity problem. Here's how to fix it. And that was the piece that you wrote, in, including the interview with Mesler. Um, is there, when you were writing this piece and you were talking about it, was there a case, and, and one of the things you mentioned is that you weren't sure that when the Winter Olympics were happening because there wasn't a lot of chatter about it. Is yeah. it, it, when you talked about US TV rights being so important in the states right now, do you think there are enough people that were interested in the Winter Olympics for them to have watched it on television? Maybe like Ross did, pretty passionately. Way fewer than ever uh, since I've been paying attention to the Olympics. I mean, people really did not. You know, when I was asking if they saw things, the answer was mostly no. Like everyone heard about the Russian figure skating controversy. Um, I think. Uh, you know, most like casual sports fans, I know, I'm not sure they really watched, you know, much of anything. And the time difference, I think, is a is a challenge. Mm. And, you know, we also had another Olympics, like not very long ago. So maybe people felt like we just had the Olympics. There's a lot of other news. Mm. But I mean, if you just, you know, logged on to like ESPN.com, most days, you wouldn't even know the Olympics were going uh, at all. And so I think it was noticeably lower interest than I'd ever experienced before. And it's still the focus very much in the States on the basketball um, sort of scenario and, and NFL. I mean, is that where the, where the focus is generally in, in American sport? Yeah, I mean, and, and college football. Um, mm. I mean, so there were like, you know, minor stories about like labor negotiations in baseball where y you could find like way above the Olympics going on um, if you were looking at a lot of the coverage. So that's, that's uh, tricky if you're troubling, I think, if you're interested in the Olympics. I'm very interested to know, I mean, it's not something that you'd probably have a lot of expertise in, but when we talk about the Commonwealth Games, and obviously the Americans aren't involved in that, but if you had to look at the Commonwealth Games from an American perspective, do you sometimes look at that and go, why do they happen? Because for us in South Africa, we look at something like that and go, well, Olympics has a global feel, World Cup soccer does, um, all those sort of things, Winter Olympics. But the Commonwealth Games is one of those things where you think, well, it's amazing that those events still happen today because it's just so the major countries aren't there and so why have it in the first place well i think it's good to have i think it's good to have events especially for development that feel like that have a lot of gravitas for the competitors you know like one thing i think that 
um, you know, the, the United States is probably like biggest advantage in sporting development is that we have this college system, right? So like I ran track in college and we have like 30 to 40,000 young people are supported in semi-serious to serious training in the U.S. because of our, our college system. And so we have all these sort of like, you know, important to the people that are in them, but most of the events aren't important to anybody else. But I think that's really good for development. So I think having those kind of, I don't know what you want to call them, like mid-major sort of regional uh, events that will feel hugely important to the people in them, even if the, even if the whole world isn't watching, it can actually be really important for development. I don't know if the Commonwealth Games are the best way to do it, but I think there should be something on that sort of layer of competition. Yeah. So just touching on the piece that you wrote, you talked about the integrity issue and how to fix it. So how do you fix it? Gosh, you know, I, I wish I knew. And I was asking uh, Steve about that and, and his feeling, you know, now he's, he's been um, on the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic, U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee board for about six years was that we really need like a full scale reset. And he thinks we need sort of a reset that we had. So like the U.S., because we had some, you know, really bad conflicts of interest in doping. Uh, separated the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency really sort of proactively from the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, for example. And then, you know, gymnastics had this sexual abuse scandal. So um, uh, USOPC started uh, and, you know, helped boost safe sport, which is independent from them. And I think what Steve sees is that we haven't kind of learned lessons from what's going on uh, at the international level where conflicts need to be need to be separated, right? Where the, the doping police and the uh, corruption police and the IOC who are the promoters of sport and the court of arbitration for sport, which is like the judiciary for sport. There are all these people, like if you make an org chart of these things, it's like arrows, you know, <laughs> it's as if people are like pointing their own fingers at themselves. Mm. Like they're all involved. One of the examples he brought up was John Coates, who is uh, vice president of the international Olympic committee um, is head of the court of arbitration for sport. So, so essentially he's, He's one of the highest members of the executive branch, if you will. He's he's the highest member of the judicial branch, and he's the head of the Australian Olympic Committee, which won, you know, w- was awarded the Olympics for Brisbane. And so, there's just the conflicts of interest are just rampant. And so, there's a ton of people in positions, you know, they're they're being put in positions where it's very easy for them, I think, you know, to put something over, uh, put promotion of the sport over their values and things like that. And so I think his feeling is that we sort of need a reset, need to kind of clean house of some of the people that have been involved in in the scandals and to create like wholly separate uh, governance bodies. And it's, it's actually even beyond promotion of the sport because at the national federation level, you're asking the same country to win medals as to catch the cheats who try and win medals by using drugs. Okay. So. And, it's, and so at every level that you can talk about, there's a problem. At the level below it, that problem is happening yeah. at an even broader base with these perverse incentives. And that's what plays out every single time. And that's why when the Russian scandal breaks, it's so easy to say, oh, look over there. But actually, everyone needs to realize that it's the same yeah. thing. I mean, you've, you've spoken to a number of people. You, you, I think you broke in 2012, was it, or 2008, where not a single out-of-competition test had been done among those Jamaican sprinters yeah. in the months yeah. leading up to the Olympic Games. That was a whistleblower from Jamaica, Renee and Shirley. Yeah. They, of course, went to the Olympics and cleaned up just about every single gold medal in the sprint events. But the, the, the National Anti-Doping Commission was either disinterested or completely underfunded to do what they were mandated to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's I mean, and think about what's going to happen now with like the big figure skating scandals. Now it's the Russian anti-doping agency that's supposed to go in and investigate um, Camila Valieva's support team. Right, the Russian anti-doping agency was implicated in tampering with <laughs> data that was handed over from the Russian state-sponsored doping right. program, and now they're you know, and 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 it's unclear if. Like they were delaying her test in the first place that caused some of this problem or what's going on. And now they're the ones that are going in to investigate. So it's just it's like, you know, it's, it's almost like laughable, I think, in, in a lot of ways. Well, in that scenario, and this is actually exactly the same point we made to, to Sean Engel before speaking to you. So if, apologies, listener, you're about to hear the same thing is they provisionally have suspended her. And then on the same day, the same body let her compete. So it's yeah. almost it's almost yeah. as though they broke for tea and then changed their minds. That's that's how it came across. Yeah. It is astonishing. And the, again, the same thing will keep happening. But I guess what, what I want to ask on that then is: Did Steve, when you spoke to him, as or has anyone else ever suggested to you how do you break that conflict of interest when the the funding to keep the anti-doping agencies alive almost by definition comes from the umbrella body which is the national federation or the international olympic committee in the case of wada because that's why the conflict exists right it's because wada yeah. gets money and money brings yeah. influence in the same yeah. way that the south african anti-doping will get its money from somewhere in south africa so how do you break that yeah i mean nobody that i've talked to has has given i think like a nuts and bolts suggestion that i know of i mean as you know there are things like the athletics integrity unit you know they're trying to create these sort of independent bodies but i don't think there is anything that that really is independent i mean i think you'd have to look at um having like a whole separate like someone would have to take a money hit right mm -hmm. like i think the, the there would have to be money set in a in a separate pool that funds some of this stuff if you're serious about it yeah and i don't think that's uh, in the current structure, I just that doesn't seem like remotely realistic. I remember saying if they took two cents off every dollar that comes from television yeah. rights and put it into a fund for anti-doping, then that would be great. But then you think about that, and the the, the TV stations, the people in the media, they don't want to catch more dopers either because now you're selling yeah. the negative side of the sport. You've got your your marriage scorecard, and all you're doing is is building up on the on the debit side. <laughs> so that's yeah, not I mean, you know, a solution either. It's interesting because like when I was, it's a, so you could make the argument like, well, why do they police doping at all? Right. That's what I was but hitting. In, in yeah. the Olympics, in the Olympics, athletes sort of clamor for it to some degree because, you know, first of all, they're, they're selling this values product. Right. And so there's some pressure to sort of try to stand up to that and at least look like you're doing something. And then athletes actually tend to tend to pressure for it. Whereas back when I was reporting in, you know, one of the first big doping story I ever broke was in baseball. And when I would talk to baseball players, they really wanted to downplay doping. You know, ah, I don't think many guys are doing it. And then when eventually I got to know them better and talk to some of them privately, I think there it was a case of, you know, maybe it's kind of good for everybody, at least at the at least at the top level, right? Like game more exciting, everyone making more money. And so sort of nobody wanted to uh, to point the finger. Whereas in the Olympics, I think it's so zero sum between people competing for spots and competing for medals that they actually want the people around them policed in a way that maybe baseball players didn't. And so I think that's a, that's a tricky part to say, if you say like, let's just not police it at all. Is there enough athletes who will sort of raise a ruckus, whereas they don't in some other sports. Mm. And so I think that's a, that's a challenging for optics. Hmm. So David, aside from obviously dealing with the negative publicity that comes from doping, have you ever, considered or heard anyone discuss how much of an overhaul the Olympic program needs 
for one thing, I think it's way too big and it's become a liability by virtue of its size. For another thing, I think there are so many events that just aren't attractive to people who were born after about 1990, <laughs> maybe even 80. And so, for example, I know that this year in Birmingham, when the Commonwealth Games happen, they're going to have an eSports Commonwealth Championships and there'll be three games played. I don't know yet what they are, but that's the kind of conversation I've heard a lot more of lately. Is that part of the solution? I, I think that would help. I mean, I think some additions, you know, snowboarding were, were big successes. Um, and then, of course, those kind of get bloated and they add more and more events that are kind of similar. But um, I think in, in talking to people, in an Olympic roles, I was actually a little surprised to hear that they feel like the IOC actually has come around on this and is like, we really need to do something. We're open to e like specifically people saying we're open to esports, and and I think that's smart because I think esports is going to be like the biggest sport in the world in in not that long, or you know, and certainly can draw in a different kind of audience, and and certainly lends itself like you could do it through Twitch, right? It lends itself to to online viewers who don't have like television subscriptions and, and can watch on mm. TV. So I think that's, I think that's crucial, right? We still have sports that most people haven't heard of like dressage and modern pentathlon. And, you know, why not get something that engages like kind of a, a younger demographic? I, I floated, I, I floated to a few friends the other day. I was like, okay, we should have, you know, one of the things that I didn't, that, that I found like a little bit not as exciting as it could be about some Olympic sports like skateboard in the summer and some of the jumping sports in in winter was it was like not that much creativity where you had a bunch of people trying to pull off the same move and just do it with like a little a little more perfect than the next. And if I go to like a like a skate park downtown near where I live, I'll watch the kids doing creative stuff and found it more interesting than I found the Olympics because they're just like trying stuff and, and being creative. Whereas the Olympics was like almost every person trying to do like the exact same move just a little better. Mm. And so I floated the idea of we should just have like a random feats of athleticism, like do whatever you want, parkour, like shoot a basket off the Hoover Dam, whatever, and then crowdsource the voting for medals. Although <laughs> none of the people I was talking to thought that that, you know, you'd create the viral videos that you need then, right? Because people would try to do all kinds of crazy stuff and people have all kinds of interesting physical talents, but none of the people I was talking to thought that was a good idea. <laughs> because? So, yeah, brilliant. Why, why do they not I think know, it's I a good idea? I don't know. They they just sort of like laughed it off. And I mean, I could I can see lots of arguments, right? Like crowdsourcing a medal like it can be whoever, you know, the fans of like BTS, the BTS army will be able to like award in a medal single handedly just by like uh, voting on Twitter. But um, I don't know. I guess they just didn't think it was. And, and I can see other problems like people might you'd have to try to encourage people to do stuff that where they won't hurt themselves. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I don't know. I just I think they thought I mean, it was silly. So maybe that's not the right idea. But I think they should think very, very broadly about generating clips that people will want to watch and share uh, and engaging a broader demographic. Mm. It's interesting because Sean Inger was talking a little bit about um, some of the half pipe um, stuff happening in the Winter Olympics. And uh, he was saying for a lot of those um, snowboarders, they, it's it's about the move, not necessarily about the medal. So for them, it's important yeah. to pull off an amazing move that nobody's ever done. And the medal is almost secondary to that. So that's what you're saying. Yeah. It's, a, it's creating the reward to pull off an amazing move rather than being constantly consistently good throughout three rounds you say I that mean, though. What, sorry go david go on sorry i was just gonna say when i watch that event i'm watching for the moves like the, the the japanese guy who ended up he ended up winning the gold medal in the half pipe anyway but like on one of the runs where he fell was the one i was the most interested in because he was just like going so much higher than everybody else i was more engaged in that the medal was sort of secondary 
It's interesting you say you say that though, but the, and and I understand what Sean's getting at, and you can see it when you watch it. But you also see how they they moderate their behaviour when there's a medal there. Because I watched a couple of events. I think it was the, the aerials, and they each get three jumps. Well, if you make top sort of eight, you get three jumps. And by the third jump, everyone's doing the same thing, hmm. because now it becomes more conservative. Yeah. They become risk averse, and they say, well, if I can pull, and this is exactly what David was saying, is if I can pull this move off, I'll score ninety seven. And all I need is 95 and I've got a medal. And if I score 97, I'll get gold. And so they do it. And so by the time you're actually finishing the competition, it's getting progressively more and more boring. Yeah. At the beginning, yeah. you see them actually going adventurous because they've got no, there's, there's no, there's no loss aversion, no risk aversion in play. But by the end, everyone's actually just trying to play it safe because they're looking at the scoreboard. They should make a separate, like, you know, like in the Tour de France where you have like a different jersey for someone who's like winning the hills and stuff. <laughs> they should make a separate one for like the most audacious jumper or something like that, mm. you know, give them some medal because you have to be wearing some medal if you're going to go on the Today Show, right? So that's a problem, like if they're <laughs> going to tell your story afterward. But I think they should not worry so much about tradition because I think trying to squash some of these sports into like this traditional mode, you know, where everyone's separated by tenths of a point, like doesn't mean any much to the viewers and i don't even think the athletes in those sports that were like x game sports before i don't think they're that focused on that unless you force them to be either well tradition is their big paradox right and it cuts both yeah. ways because as a, because that's the thing that actually the values rest upon i don't know yeah. about you but i i love the olympic tradition i love the flame i love the opening ceremony and the lighting of the torch and the the gold silver bronze and mm -hmm. it's the four-year cycle but but they that you're right they can't break free of that that's true in all yeah. IOC things. Even their even their sports medicine is very traditional, which is which is I suppose expected. But do you think that speaking of tradition, do you think that the model of a city hosting the games is sustainable? Um, it doesn't look good. I think you know maybe you'll start to have more sort of partnerships, yeah, like regional partnerships. Um, I mean, I think I Milan think is like that in two thousand and twenty six. The next Winter Games are spread out over thousands of kilometers. Yeah. Yeah, so I I think you know, and that's challenging for its own reasons. But I think, I think I think it it might be viable if the IOC sticks to what it says about not forcing this like tremendous amount of new building and and using things that are there. So maybe that would mean going to a smaller number of places, you mm -hmm. know, sort of repeat uh, customers. But um, I think I think like more sort of regional or partnership. You know, maybe you'd even see a partnership. There are plenty of countries like the u.s and canada like there's plenty of places that could could host between the u.s and canada and it would be close enough um so i think and maybe that would be an interesting thing to do for other reasons anyway uh to have some countries partnering mm. uh, so don't have to do a ton of new building can split some of the some of the burdens mm. i guess the hardest part about all these changes is that it all starts i guess at the top you know when you talk about the ioc and and those officials that get there and i'm i'm always it's quite fascinating when you look at businesses you know, in traditional businesses there, people kind of move through the ranks. And I suppose it's the same with the IOC. You start off as a an official in your country and then you move up the ranks and you become a regional official, then you become on the IOC committee. But I mean, if you had to change the way that that happens, in other words, to bring in new blood, to bring in new thoughts, like the stuff that you've talked about now, how do you go about making that change happen? Because essentially it has to come down top down, doesn't it? Yeah. I, and I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think I talked to Steve a little bit. We talked about this concept called cathedral thinking, which is where, like, how do you build a system so that, you know, it, like like an architect designs a cathedral, it might not be done for 50 years after they're already dead. So how do you put in place plans that will 
will help this thing survive even when you're gone. And I think right now, if you look at the top ranks of the IOC, like you have people who have had a pretty cushy, you know, a lot of money rolling in, a lot of like nice lifestyle. And honestly, if the Olympics like go down, it doesn't really affect them personally. Like it's like at any company, like the people at the top, even if the company's going down, well, you know, they're, they're going to be fine because it's, it's not like their, their time where things are really going to be a disaster. And so I don't know that there's much incentive even to, to rebuild it, you know, from, from the people at the top right now. And I don't know how you change that. Like get, you know, get some of the people who have been like whistleblowers on various things to be part of uh, the process of building it. But, you know, there are obvious reasons that people don't do that. Mm. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think it would, it would take a big kind of reset, but I don't, I haven't even begun to think about what that would look like. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, I think the way you've got to do it really is you've got to bring in some of the young blood. And the other way to do that is to create a policy that allows for that. So, you know, it's a bit like bringing in disruptors into a company where you have a, you know, disruptors are critical for a different way of thinking. But how you do that at a federation level, because it starts at regional. Yeah, but I mean, aren't, aren't we back on the same dilemma there that if you ask someone to bring in a disruptor who's by definition a threat to them. Yeah. They'll bring in someone yeah. who is a disruptor only in name, who's actually just there to protect them until they move on and then take over from them. So it's the same it's the same conceptual situation as with asking sports to do their own anti-doping or countries mm. to do their own anti-doping is they will they will just find it they will turn it into just another lever that they can pull or manage yeah. for their own benefit. I mean, I think one of the reasons why Steve was, because I think it's sort of unusual, like, so Steve Messer sort of talking the way he was for a USOPC board member, because usually they like to paint a rosy picture of everything mm, Olympic related. Yeah. And I, th- I think one of the reasons that he's he's being more candid now is because he feels that, you know, like that the, the US is in a unique position that may maybe won't last that long to say, Hey, we're holding a lot of the purse strings here. We we can force some of this change if we really were aggressive, and said, you know, we're not, like, we're not gonna allow new top sponsors, for example, until like some of this stuff is dealt with, and that that's gonna be a window that passes. It it doesn't seem to me like there is the will to to do that, but I think that's one of the reasons why he's doing this. So maybe you would need some coalition of people or of countries that are sort of holding purse strings to say like this has to be ripped up right now, like mandate, you know, a certain number of younger people involved in upper management or, or it just wouldn't happen. But I just don't see, I don't see the will for that happening. So I think the likelihood is probably that, I don't know, maybe, maybe there'll be some, you know, now the Olympics are going to come back to some, uh, they're going to come sort of back West to some, uh, you know, where more of the viewership will be on the right time zone and some of the like, the Olympics that were in Russia and and Brazil, I think had like lots of other challenges. So maybe there'll be sort of some like natural Mm. benefits and bounce back. But otherwise I think for a lot of the world, we might just see like sort of a continuing decline of interest and it'll still be a spectacle that people like every four years, but kind of not the Olympics that maybe the three of us grew up with. Yeah. I think think you're right that the will is the thing that's missing. There are ways to do it, but the will, it's the same thing as anti-doping where there's a will, there's a way, but we we don't get out of the blocks. And the problem is it's, you know, I don't know if you know the saying, it's like asking turkeys to vote for Christmas. They're not going to, these IRC guys are not that because they are super cushy. I've been to one or two IRC events and these guys, they know how to spend money. (laughs) <laughs> tell you when you yeah. get an invite to the IOC you think this is here comes luxury 
And a lot of the athletes I mean, are struggling themselves just to make ends meet, as so you mentioned in your column. But they, every every country should do what Norway did, or whoever did that, and leak those IOC demands. Every country <laughs> should do it. Every country that bids, they should make a condition of bidding that they leak the IOC's demands. Hmm. And and I think because I think that like made a difference. Like you saw a decrease in in cities bidding because it just it looks terrible yeah. to, to like voters and taxpayers. So I think stuff like that would make a difference, but. You know, Ross, like you said, the quote here, I think it's, I don't know if it was Upton Sinclair maybe said that it's difficult to get a guy to do something when his job depends on not doing it. Yes. Um, you know, his livelihood depends on not doing it or something like that. Right. So I think that's kind of the situation uh, we see. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah. How, There's so little accountability. So how far, so little accountability. if you had to take a, take a bit of a guess as a last sort of question, how long do you think the Olympics has got until it gets <laughs> to a critical state? And do you think in the long term, it's doomed? I guess it depends what a critical state is. I mean, <clears throat> I think... A state where if, it's forced to change, put it that way. Forced to change as opposed to voluntarily changing. Yeah. Because my guess is you'll see, like, you know, again, with the single most important thing, if you had to pick one thing in the Olympics, it would be like NBC's television contract. Um, my guess is that they're not viewing that as having been a great investment right now. And so I think that's that's a big challenge um you know i don't know i don't think the olympics are going to disappear i think it's still going to be a spectacle that will interest people every few years but to a diminishing degree um and uh yeah i think it'll just get i think it'll just get smaller and more irrelevant and um slowly i i don't know yeah i have no idea what like a timeline would be but i think these next few olympics are are pretty crucial like i think if if the if la which is 2028 if that doesn't like engage again the largest tv market then i think maybe you see the olympics are like they'll start going to places like doha where they'll just like pay just to host them because they can um yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. I, I definitely don't think it's – I think it's salvageable. Again, I think it's this issue of the negative kind of feelings and coverage outweigh the positive so heavily that, like, you just – how long can you keep going like that? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'm outing myself as the science guy here, but I want to see numbers. I would love to know what proportion of the viewership is aged under 20, 20 to 30, 30 to 40, and so on over the last four Olympic cycles, let's say. And I'd also yeah. love to know that if you went to a, if we stood on Times Square, David, or, or in on the mall in Washington, and we said to every passerby, tell me three things you know about the Olympics, what proportion of the, each of those age bands would even know an answer to that question? Because I think they'd be the, the first signs of the apocalypse might be evident in those numbers. Because I would be surprised if a lot of 20-something-year-olds know even three things about the olympic games and yeah. that would be I, that would be the most alarming thing to the extent that one day you'd look back and you'd say you know what actually the writing was on the wall there yeah might be too yeah. late already i agree i mean i i don't i don't think it's too late but i i think that's a huge problem again if looking at like espn.com is the best way to sort of sample the general sports viewership in the u.s right mm. and you would see nothing You'd see nothing. You wouldn't have known it was going on until there was a scandal, basically. Yeah. So, no, I, I, I think you're right. That I, I wonder if we'll get to a point where, like, 
Because one thing I've noticed is Olympians that aren't even in popular sports sometimes will have large like Instagram following. So they post cool pictures. The Olympics might have to relax some of the advertising rules, which could be a challenge. But, you know, maybe we'll see a company like maybe the metaverse will host the Olympics or like Google will host the Olympics <laughs> or something. And then you can sort of you'll have less disconnect between like, is this a corporate event or is this like a this values driven movement? Right. You can just be like, yeah, it's a corporate event, <laughs> you know, and then maybe that'll that'll. uh um you know make the disconnect a little bit less like jarring yeah because i mean I, I can only ever think from my perspective but my love for the olympics was created by effectively having it handed down to me because my parents watched yeah. it so i don't know whether that's the same for you i i think i i was a bigger sports fan than my than my family and i sort of like grew up reading sports illustrated right and so i would see like an article on like Carl Lewis and then you get to see him compete mm. in the Olympics. And that was sort of like the treat in the first time. Like that's not the case anymore. Mm. Right? So, which, which um, helps the games and, and these, these sports because they have a certain inertia and you, you, they, they, they perpetuate their own myth, <laughs> their own legend. Yeah. In, this case, yeah. in the case of the Olympic integrity, it's myth, but it's legend really. But then that, that turns into a severe handicap when that legend starts to wane because now you say, well, where's the 15-year-old going to be inspired? What's, what out of Beijing 2022 inspired a 15-year-old? Very little, I would have thought. Yeah. The half-pipe. Yeah, ma ma yeah well, maybe. I mean, in, in, in China, the people are watching like Eileen Gu and um, mm. you know, so. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I, I take it that she's become a huge celebrity in, in China. And so I would expect to see a, a burst of young athletes training uh, there. Mm. Well, let's hope for all of our sakes as fans of the Olympic Games and all those international events that they do manage to make a turnaround and uh, change things uh, for the better. David Epstein, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Wish I had easier answers to this. Um, I don't think there are any easy answers. I think they need some, like, some things are going to have to get broken <laughs> if they want to fix it. Mm, I agree. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.